One of the most influential books on faith in the 20th century was written by a guy named H. Helmut, I think is his first name, H. Richard Niebuhr, and it was called Christ and Culture. And this 1975 publication, it's, it's been quoted repeatedly over the last 50 years by anyone who is trying to understand the relationship between our faith and the culture that we live in. Now Niebuhr suggests, he suggests five different ways, and I'm not going to go, I'm just kind of gloss over this, but five different ways that this relationship between Jesus and the broader world exists. For example, are those two, faith or Jesus and culture, are they oppositional to one another? Right? Are, do they have a contentious relationship? That's what he calls Christ against culture. Or is there agreement between the two? which is what he calls Christ of culture. And then his final three are kind of a combination of the two. And you, you can kind of get a, a sense of what they mean. Um, Christ above culture is that, that paradigm. Right? That, that Jesus is above the culture, transcends the culture that we live in. Christ in culture and paradox. And lastly, Christ the transformer of culture. And depending on how we interpret that relationship, oftentimes will affect how we live into it live our faith into the broader world. And Niebuhr has argued that over the course of church history, there, it's been a question that many different faithful followers of Jesus have answered in different ways. And so this morning, as we continue to look at this series that we've called Shining Lights, we've been looking at the letters that Jesus wrote to the seven churches in Asia Minor in the beginning of the book of Revelation, we're going to see that there's really nothing new under the sun, Right? This relationship between the church or Christ and culture continues now to be a relevant conversation, but it was relevant 2,000 years ago in the first generation of the church. So if you want to uh, pull out your Bibles or Bible apps and turn to Revelation chapter 2, uh, we're going to look at the letter that was written to the church of Pergamum. Now, we have used this image the last few weeks, and we're going to keep going to it, tracking our journey geographically, right? So there's modern-day Turkey. This is Asia Minor in the ancient world, and I'm going to zoom in there on kind of that left-hand side. So just a, a reminder, that bottom left-hand star is the Isle of Patmos. That is the, the island that John, the apostle who penned the book of Revelation, the, that, that God gave him, the vision that God gave him, that is where he is as he's writing this and had this vision. And so we had already looked at Ephesus, and Smyrna, two of the most important um, cities in Asia Minor. Uh, and we're going to continue our journey northward to uh, what they call on this, I, I stole this graphic, this is not original to me, Pergamos. Most Bible translations would translate it uh, Pergamum. And so Pergamum was another famous metropolitan area. There were between 120 and 200,000 residents in the city. Now one of the unique things about Pergamum is that when the Roman Empire is expanding, Pergamum kind of read the signs of what was coming. They knew that Rome like, was this powerhouse that was going to come and kind of dominate the areas. And so Pergamum actually joined with Rome to war against the other Mediterranean kings in their conquest. And so Pergamum is one of those cities that had really special favor. They had kind of, you know, they had scratched Ro Rome's back in that process, and so Rome returns in kind. And so that's the setting. That's, that's the place in which we read this next letter. So I'm going to read it now. This is Revelation chapter 2, 
And I'm going to read verses 12 through 17. And to the angel of the church in Pergamum write, The words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword. I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. Yet you hold fast my name, and you did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you, where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. So also you have some who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Therefore, repent. If not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone with a new name written on that stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. So just to kind of go over our formula, this is the formula we have had the last two weeks and we'll see for the entirety of the series. The letter introduces the author, Jesus, with some kind of cryptic uh, description of him. There's some commendations, right, some things that they've been doing well. And then if applicable, there's some critiques some places where Jesus challenges them. And then it closes out with words of comfort. So looking at this author, Jesus, it describes him as him who has the sharp two-edged sword. Now, we we saw this last week when we looked ahead to Revelation chapter 5, verses 5 through 6, that Jesus is both the lamb who was slain, but also the lion of the tribe of Judah right, that royalty. Jesus' first arrival was marked by his humility, by his meekness, right, that he suffered and died on our behalf to defeat sin and death to restore our relationship with God. But the book of Revelation teaches that when Jesus comes to earth again, he is not coming as a suffering servant, but is, excuse me, but is coming as the conquering king. Now, the reference to the sword could be interpreted. There's, there's two primary ways that scholars seem to interpret this, uh, um, th- this metaphor of Jesus as having the sword. It could be a nod to the Christians at Pergamum who are suffering right, and, and other areas. While the Roman government has put forth their right to capital punishment, it, it alludes to that in the text that Antipas, one of these faithful witnesses, was killed by the sword. Maybe not by the sword, but again, that's the, the metaphor that is often used. The Roman government took this right to capital punishment, but the letter reminds us who truly has the authority over life and death, Jesus. But the sword could also be a reference to a statement that Jesus makes a little bit later against false prophets, false teachers in their midst. We see in, I think it's verse 16, that motif of the sword come up again, where Jesus says that he is going to make war against the false prophets with the sword that comes out of his mouth. Now, regardless, whichever one or if both of those interpretations are what's intended, what we can glean from this, what we know is that Jesus is the one who has ultimate authority in this situation. Now, Jesus opens uh, in verse 13 with some commendations. 
similar to what we saw last week in the city of Smyrna. Smyrna in particular, we last week focused heavily on the idea of persecution and martyrdom. Jesus says he knows where Satan's throne is located and commends them for standing firm in the faith, even as believers like Antipas are killed. There is faithful witness amidst persecution and death. So because I focused last week a lot on persecution, on martyrdom, I don't want to spend too much time on it this week. Instead, I want to look a little closer at this language of Satan's throne. What does that mean? Now, Revelation, for many believers, is a book that people often get a little nervous about reading. When When I worked in campus ministry, Uh, at the University of Pittsburgh, there was a student uh, who just was like terrified to read it. You know, she was was anxious because there's a lot of metaphors and symbolism that you don't necessarily find in the rest of the New Testament, right? We're left with this reality of are we supposed to, how are we supposed to understand this? Are these things that were fulfilled in the first century AD, do they speak specifically of, of, you know, future revelations that are to come? And we don't know. It's a really difficult book for us to wade through, and none of us have precise answers to those questions. And so this language of Satan's throne is another example of the difficulty that's posed in this book. It's unclear what this is a reference to. Now, hopefully, those first Christians in Pergamum would have understood precisely what Jesus meant when he said that. But for us, 2,000 years later, some of that stuff might have been lost to, to history. So we have to kind of take, you know, assemble through history, through archaeology and whatnot, to try to put the pieces back together. Now, Pergamum was a city that had a lot of pagan connections in it. There were cults of Demeter, of Dionysus, of Athena, Orpheus. There was also an enormous altar, like 18-foot-tall statue of Zeus, called Zeus the Savior in the city. Uh, Zeus being the chief god of the Greek and Roman pantheon. Uh, that could be what's in view, right? This huge kind of uh, uh, statue that is, you know, the throne of, uh, of Zeus. Maybe. This city was, was so pagan that according to Jewish tradition, they believed that it was one of the first cities that was going to be slated for destruction by Yahweh. But another prevalent organization in the city was the healing cult of Asclepius. I had to write out the pronunciation of that in my, in my uh, notes because I wouldn't have remembered. Asclepius, he was the god of medicine and healing. And many of his followers sought to bring healing to patrons who would visit the city. You know, they come bring, uh, you know, doctor, medicine looked very, very different in the ancient world. And so uh, a lot of times there were these, these pursuits of, you know, uh, you, you go and you throw your money at this healer who hopefully under the, you know, in your mind, hopefully under the, the authority of Asclepius could, could bring healing. Now, we actually, in our uh, 21st century, are a little bit more familiar with an Asclepius than we probably realize. So this here is the symbol of medicine. You've probably seen it. Uh, th- there's another version of it that has two serpents uh, on a staff, um, that you might see on ambulances and whatnot, but this is the, the symbol for medicine. And um, this, this asterisk, in the side of this blue asterisk, this rod with the snake is actually called the rod of Asclepius. Now there's a point behind this history lesson. There was a pretty significant presence of the cult of Asclepius in the city of Pergamum. And if his sig- sigil, his symbol, is this rod with a snake, wrapped around it. Now let's make this connection with Satan because in the Old Testament in Genesis, Satan is described in the Garden of Eden 
as a serpent. A metaphor that we see later in the book of Revelation as well. And so it's possible that this was meant to be kind of a wordplay, a nod to the presence of this cult, right? the cult of the serpent, Satan, in, uh, in the city. In addition to this, like the, the previous two cities we studied, there was a large presence of the imperial cult, right? this worship of the emperor. Uh, there was a huge temple of, of Augustus in the city. And, you know, in truth, we don't precisely know what Satan's throne is supposed to be, but what it represents is less important than the fact that what Jesus is communicating is an acknowledgement that this is a godless city, that this is an inhospitable place for the church to grow and flourish. So Jesus recognizes their steadfastness with him, but he doesn't only give a positive report. The presence of suffering by the Roman world does not mean that they were spot on in all of their behaviors and beliefs. The church of Pergamum was not only dealing with the external threat of persecution, but they also had some internal struggles as well, which Jesus describes as them following the teachings of Balaam. Now, if you aren't familiar with Balaam, he, he's a famous figure in the Old Testament in the book of Numbers, approximately Numbers 20 to 22. God, after he miraculously delivers the Hebrew people out of slavery in Egypt, they're slowly, you know, meandering their way through the Middle East, the, or the ancient Near East, uh, getting to the promised land of Israel. And as they're kind of walking along there, there's a lot of, you know, kings of other nations that, that they drew their attention of in the region. Right? They, they see this wandering nation as a threat to their national security. And so one of these such kings, a guy by the name of Balak, hired an entourage, sent a bunch of treasure to this guy named Balaam. Uh, uh, he's called, I always love it, it makes me think of Lord of the Rings, Balaam, son of Beor. Right? Balaam, who is some kind of seer, to see if he, can you come, Balaam, come and curse this nation that is at the doorstep of our kingdom. Now, initially, when Balaam is asked, he, he consults God. Should he go? And God says, no, do not go with him. But Balaam seemed unsatisfied with that answer, and he asked the Lord a second time. And the Lord appears to relent, says, whatever, go with them. I don't know, if, you, if you're a parent, you know, you know what that's like. Ask and ask, all right, whatever, just stop asking me questions. But he says, you can go, but do only what I say. And the text says that Balaam saddled his donkey. He rose in the morning, saddled his donkey, and headed off to join Balak's entourage. And clearly, somewhere in there, he made a poor decision because the text says that God's anger was kindled against Balaam because he went. And this is the memorable part of the story, if you've heard or read it before, where Balaam's donkey talks, uh, chastises him, rebukes him, talking donkey, before, long before Shrek. Now, one of the morals that comes out of this Old Testament story is that Balaam's end goal was selfish. He ultimately is acting out of self-interest. He is acting out of greed. He wants those resources, that money that Balak sent to him, and he's willing to throw Israel under the bus for the correct compensation. Now, he ends up not. He ends up uh, blessing Israel because uh, that's what the Lord told him to do. But his motivation was kind of that get-rich-quick, right? I, I can retire on this nest egg if I do, do what he, he's asking me to do. Right? The Bible says that he creates a stumbling block for the Hebrew people, potentially preventing them from being obedient to, to the things that God commands. And in this case, it was their journey to the promised land that God had set apart from them. He's kind of 
initially trying to be a, a barrier, a hurdle to that. So that happens, goodness, that's like roughly 1500 BC, give or take a few hundred years. So let's fast forward to the first century AD. Now the reference to Balaam is not meant to be the exact Balaam of the story in Numbers that I just summarized, right? Because the language that is used here of what Balaam is leading them astray to is very different from what we see in the story of Numbers. Right? The language of food sacrificed to idols and sexual immorality, those are different stumbling blocks. So this reference is probably supposed to be understood of not some like teaching, mystical teaching of Balaam that lasted 1500 years, but it's meant to be a, a metaphor of a false teacher or a group of false teachers who are creating barriers, creating hurdles, keeping the Christians from worshiping God the way that God expected them to. Keeping, encouraging them to compromise on certain elements of faith. And there's two elements of Balaam's waywardness that are referenced here. Now, the, f- the first, well, actually the second, the reference to sexual immorality is probably meant, not meant to be understood literally, but it's a metaphor for spiritual unfaithfulness. T- time and time again in the Old Testament, where the followers of Yahweh would turn away from following him, the language that is used is that of infidelity, marital infidelity. That's how it's described. But I, I want to f- hone in on a little bit this food sacrifice to idols. Now, if you lived in the first century A.D. some 2,000 years ago, and you wanted to have a nice steak for dinner, you couldn't just, you know, drive to the supermarket, go to Aldi, you know, get a nice cut and bring it home. If you wanted meat, you had a couple of options. You would either go out to your, you know, your backyard, and you would slaughter one of the cows that you owned in order to have that, or you would go to the local market to pick some up. But buying meat at a market was, again, very different from our experience. The meat that were sold was leftovers from sacrifices that had been offered to pagan gods and goddesses. Now, so the early Christians had a dilemma. Were they able to eat this meat or not? Now, if we look at the writings of Paul, specifically 1 Corinthians chapter 8, Paul tells us that he tells the Christians in his midst in the city of Corinth, which was another one of those godless cities, but that's a story for another day, that it is acceptable. He says, it is okay for you to go and eat this food that is sacrificed to idols, right? You can have that freedom of conscience to purchase the meat, whether or not it was offered to a pagan deity. Now, what Jesus is describing here is not just going to the meat market to purchase some food for dinner. What he's probably referencing is the practice of syncretism. Now, syncretism is when you take elements of other worldviews and you bring them into your own practice. For example, in the book of Daniel, the story of Daniel, uh, Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, has this dream of this really tall statue made of different metals, and Daniel correctly interprets the dream. And Nebuchadnezzar responds this way. He says, truly, your God is the God of gods and the Lord of kings. Now, does this mean, right, because Nebuchadnezzar just acknowledged that God, that Yahweh is the God of gods and Lord of kings, does this mean that Nebuchadnezzar is now a follower of Yahweh? Probably not, right? Especially because the very next thing he does was, is, is to go and build a statue in his likeness and encourage everyone to worship it. But probably what had happened, which was very common in the ancient Near East, was that he just added Yahweh, right? He added Yahweh to his group of gods and goddesses that he worshiped, his pantheon. And so looking at the context of the early Christians, they 
Here in this city, they were assimilating into the broader Roman culture where they were starting to honor other deities, other gods and goddesses. Now, these avenues that Jesus expressed were disobedience of what it means. It doesn't mean that we have to be, uh, 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 you know, um, oppose everything that comes in the culture, and we're going we're gonna to get back to that. But most likely what here it's referring to are um, the, these feasts. The, the disciples were participating in imperial cult feasts that honored Caesar. The, these were quote-unquote guild meals. Think of them as like a religious version of your local rotary club, right? A place that you would go to, to network, right? To rub elbows with people of influence and the like. So for Christians, for them to not participate in these guild meals would be a sacrifice because it would hinder their economic opportunities down the line. Like I said, we're going to circle back to this theme of assimilation when we look at application. But in the words of one commentator, he describes this eating food sacrificed to idols as accommodation to the world at the expense of one's total devotion to God's standards. The Christians in Pergamum were, co- were compromising certain key elements of their faith for the sake of popularity or for the sake of prosperity in the world. Jesus closes now his statement, so looking at the end of it, with his words of comfort to Pergamum, to the church in Pergamum. He says, to those who overcome will receive hidden manna and a white stone with a new name on the stone. Now, this is interesting because a Roman historian is by the name of Pliny the Elder, pagan guy, not a Christian at all, uh, but he wrote about how the government would respond harshly to Christians who did not participate in these guild meals. In in fact, he says that one of his, because he was one of, uh, you know, think of him as like a, police officer, a magistrate perhaps, local magistrate, one of the tactics that he would use to try to root out the Christian in the community is if someone was arrested, he would put the sacrificial food of meat and wine in front of them. And if they were unwilling to eat of that food, it was a clear sign that they were part of this, you know, following of Jesus. Now look at that comfort, because I think this sets up quite a contrast. Those Christians who refused to eat the tainted meat in honor of Caesar by the Roman government, what they're offered is food, but a different kind of food, the hidden manna, right, the secret sustenance from God. Additionally, a white stone was often used in a court of law to symbolize an acquittal. These Christians who refused the sacrifice or the sacrificial food offered by the Romans are declared guilty by the Roman government, declared an enemy of the state. But Jesus says that those who overcome, those who stay faithful, will have their verdict overturned. The world might say that they're guilty, but he advocates for their innocence. And note what is on that stone. Not their current name, but their new name. A name just between them and Jesus. Now, I hope you're able to start seeing some strong gospel language, a a strong gospel trend in this statement of comfort, right? Because this is the pattern of Christianity. The old self has died, and it's been replaced with new life, a new identity. The comfort Jesus gives is directly correlated with their suffering. 
if they refuse to eat the sacrificial meal, the Lord is going to provide their sustenance through the hidden manna. But by abstaining, they are declared guilty before the Roman government. But Jesus is going to wipe away that guilt, giving them a new name, eternal name, and place in his kingdom. So what do these words mean for us in the 21st century? Because the truth is we don't really have the opportunity to partake in feasts that are, you know, sullied by the worship of, of false deities. We, we live in a very different world. But I would argue that while we don't bow down to statues or monuments of stone or wood or metal anymore, we have a lot of idols that we have assimilated into the Christian life. And truth is, it's a natural desire to want to fit in, to want to avoid behaviors or situations that might cause us to lose credibility with the culture at large. Now, if you're the parent of a teen or preteen, I'm sure that you have had conversations with them around social media. Last week at soccer practice, some of Elizabeth's friends were recording themselves doing a, a specific dance. And Elizabeth sat there and watched them do take after take and she felt, she shared with me afterwards that she was feeling left out because she doesn't have access to the same uh, social media platform that they had uh, that the content was on. And so on the ride home, you know, she, she has asked me, hey, can we get that app on the phone? Well, Sarah and I, my wife, have been very clear that we don't want her to have access to social media. This isn't a statement of judgment on anyone who has made different decisions. Um, but for us, uh, we, we have made the decision not to. Right, there are countless studies that show how social media has ne negative effects on the psyche of teenagers and especially girls. Now, so, several of that being said, several months ago, we did relent. Uh, we did give her Snapchat. Uh, in fact, when Snapchat first came out, I think it's a little bit different than it was when it first came out, so that's good. But what Snapchat provided is ab avenues where there was a little bit more control, right? Sh she, she could only see certain people's to some extent, content of people that she had friended and vice versa. But last week, she came face to face with there are certain avenues where that's not enough. There are certain other places where many of her peers have access to this, but Sarah and I, her parents, have continued to say no, but yet there's this desire to fit in. Now, just because we would give her access to that platform doesn't mean that she's going to necessarily be assimilated into the culture, but too often... In our desire to fit in, it sends us down a slippery slope where we might start to see the devotion or a commitment to Jesus edge slightly, and then more and more, until we've become a product of our culture. Now for Elizabeth, it had to do with what social media apps that she had access to. But for us, it could be any number of things. One of the ones that I deal with a lot, I, I coach soccer, youth soccer here um, in, in Woodland Hills. Um, what does it look like to gather with the people of God for worship on Sunday mornings? There's all kinds of things that can get in our way. There's always house projects to do, kids' athletics to run to. I know some U12 that I'm coaching now started, uh, prior to this it was always Saturdays we had our games, but now it's Sundays. So I got to like get special dispensation of the league because I was like, if you've got a game, I'm not going so that it's in the afternoon. Or we have grocery shopping or other errands to run that need to be done. And it's easy for us to let those things take priority over our lives until we begin to compromise of our devotion towards Jesus Christ. 
Now, now my goal in saying that, my my goal is not to uh, criticize anyone or guilt anyone to come to church. But I've been impressed with the model set forward before us by those first Christians. That in order to hold fast to their faith in Jesus Christ, they rejected these guild meals. They lost out on opportunity for advancement as a result. Following Jesus Christ is not something that's a hobby or something that he calls us to dabble with on the side. It's a call to upend the power struggles in our lives for the sake of Jesus Christ. And that means that there's going to be sacrifice that, is going, that will be a necessary part of what it means to walk with Jesus. Not a sacrifice that we do out of obligation. We don't do it so that God loves us more. Again, I, I, I say this all the time because too often we get this mixed up. Right? We, we fall back into this works righteous that it's like, well, if I don't go to church or I don't read my Bible or I don't pray, God is going to be displeased with me. No, in Jesus Christ right now, his death and resurrection, God is fully satisfied with you. He does not, he, you cannot do anything to make him love you anymore and cannot get, do anything that causes him to love you any less. So we don't do it because we have to or out of drudgery, but we delight in God because of what he's done. We don't mind putting aside the things that the world values. But that might mean that you block off Sunday morning just to keep using this example for worship. But then your kid can't participate on the track team. Or you miss out on that book club and brunch that you were really excited about. Maybe it means that instead of pursuing job advancement for the sake of the mighty dollar, you learn contentment in the place that God has put you in. Maybe instead of buying the newest television or Jordans, you'll use your resources to help those in need. It's so easy for us to become a byproduct of the culture. Now, I'm not saying, I'm not saying that we should be antagonistic towards the culture that is not the posture that I am encouraging us towards. Paul is frequently citing cultural goods in his preaching and teaching. The, the Sermon on Mars Hill, Acts, I want to say 16, somewhere around there, uh, is a great example of that. Right? He's in front of all these pagans, these people who do not know Jesus, do not even know Yahweh, and he's talking to them about these, these altars to an unknown God. He's like quoting their, their pagan poets. Right? It would have been like him you know, uh, quoting a line from Jay-Z to, to, to bring about his gospel point home to them. There's nothing wrong with using these cultural goods. I'm not saying that capitalism is all bad or that sh- we shouldn't subscribe to Netflix. I'm not advocating, advocating that we become Amish. But you know what? There is a place where I think the Amish are onto something. Because the Amish are not anti-technology. But when a new technology is developed, what they do is they meet together and they evaluate how will this newest piece of technology affect us? What will this technology do to their faith and their communities? They count the cost of will this technology bring us closer to God and closer to one another? And if the answer is no, they're like, all right, it's not time for that. Part of Balaam's issue was that he was trying to sanctify the world's values. He was trying to make it possible to engage in whatever sort of revelry everyone else around him was doing. And as we saw in Pergamum, right, it was trying to sanctify to say, all right, well, you know, maybe it's not so bad for us to eat, you know, go to these guild feasts. Again, nothing new under the sun. 
historically, through church history, this is something that we don't always have the best track record in. Just to give an example, during the civil rights movement, the Bible was regularly used to justify segregation, to justify clan activity. The followers of Jesus had become believers in Pergamum, but in, effort, in an effort to maintain the privilege of the society, they twisted, they warped the Bible in order to fit in to a mold that served them best. You know, during the civil rights era, they, those Christians that used scripture in that way to try to sanctify this had assimilated to their society of white supremacy and did their best to kind of put God's stamp of approval on it. But here in the, t- in the 21st century, we do it all the time. We assimilate. It is so easy for us to assimilate to a, pr- repub- or, excuse me, a political party, whether that be Republican or Democrat. Right? We, we want to sanctify the consumerism of the world that we live in. We want to respond with the outrage that everybody else around us does. When we are wronged, we kind of put them on blast. I don't know what it is for you, but the truth is we are there's always temptation in our midst in these areas. But Jesus calls us to himself, right? Not turning our back on culture, not saying, oh, it's all gonna burn in the end anyway, but ensuring that our priorities are in alignment with the path that God has carved out for us, right? To be citizens of this country, but to remember that our ultimate citizenship is the kingdom of God, It might call us to give up our fear of missing out, our desire to be like everyone else. But the result is that we are left with something far more precious. We're given the hidden manna from heaven, that sustenance of God to get us through, and that white stone with our new name, our new identity emblazoned upon it. As we prepare to go this week, I've been given reflection questions, and I'll I'll keep posting these on Facebook. So here's some reflection questions to think about. What area of life do you feel that twinge, right? You all probably know what I'm talking about. You know, we call it our conscience, but that place where the Holy Spirit says, "Ah, maybe this isn't a path that I should be walking down. What area of life is that? for you, that you, when you engage in it, you're like, maybe, maybe I shouldn't be doing this. So first is identify, name that. And the second is, how do you react when that feeling comes? Right? Does it stop you in your tracks? Uh, again, the, in uh, Elijah, when he encountered God, it was that still, small voice. And oftentimes, I think that's how the Holy Spirit responds to us, is that still, small voice. Do we quiet the noise enough to hear what God is saying to us? Or we kind of like, you know what? I'm just going to keep going. Blaze on ahead. So those are kind of the, the two questions that I have for you this, this week to think about. Right? What do you do when God kind of puts that in your spirit that something's not right? Well, what, what is that area and what do you do whenever it comes? And lastly, I want to encourage you to dwell on your new name. Dwell on your identity. Right? Meditate on 2 Corinthians 5.17. I have it here in my notes. It says this, Therefore, If anyone is in Christ, he or she is a new creation. The old has passed away and the new has come. All right, let's join together in prayer.
Lord, as you gave your words of commendation, of critique, of comfort to these early churches, may we continue to see how there are two things in the world that have been unchanging through human history. One is your goodness and faithfulness, and the other is the depravity of humanity, the sinfulness and fallenness of humanity. May we continue to identify places where in this context as we join with the followers of Pergamum that we see the places that we are in danger of assimilating. Places where we feel like maybe we can just compromise on this little thing in order to fit in or to get ahead. God, in that may your spirit speak loud and clear to us of the path that you call us to, that we may rest in that other thing that is true, your goodness your faithfulness, your provision and sustenance. God, be with us this week as we go about our lives and continue to remind us of that new name that you've called us to or called us by. In Jesus' name, amen.